What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. So happy to be back on for another week of the podcast. I hope you've been enjoying it and checking out some of my older stuff that I've had up here for a while. It's great to have a new season started. Today, we have Dr. Tim Cook speaking with me about his newest book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for survival in the Great War. Tim is an awesome person to speak with. He's a great person. Uh, he's been very open with being on my programming, and uh, he's been a great supporter of what I've been trying to do in life. And I've been really happy to uh, have some email conversations with him about history and what's coming up in the future. And we got together late last year, and we talked about this book. And there's some amazing things in this book. Tim is a great writer, one of my favorite writers. And uh, I have many of his books, including this one we're going to be talking about. And you're going to hear some new things about medical care in the First World War, things that happened to bodies of the fallen in the First World War. And you're going to come away thinking about this in perhaps a new way. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation about lifesavers and body snatchers, medical care, and the struggle for survival in the Great War with my friend, Dr. Tim Cook. But it's a, a great uh, honor and privilege to have uh, my friend, Dr. Tim Cook, back on. Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm good, John. Great to be back uh, speaking to you, and uh, um, what a delight to uh, to be able to talk about my new book. It is. I'm, I'm so glad that we are able to have you back on. Uh, it's it's been too long since we've we've seen you on here, so I'm really happy to have you and uh, to be able to introduce you maybe to a new audience. I've picked up some followers since the last time you were on, and. Uh, they'll realize that this wasn't your first book, and we'll go over that <laughs> later. Obviously, they got to get the whole plethora of Tim Cook books. Uh, but Tim, I, you know me, I love to start out from the bottom up, and I love to get the foundational awareness of my guests. So if you wouldn't mind, would you uh, let us know about where the spark of history started for you, Tim, uh, years ago? Yeah, well, I come from a family of historians, so perhaps I was born into it. Both of my parents are uh, Canadian historians of Canadian history. My dad went into archives. My mother went into teaching. and um, But uh, I grew up in a house of books, and I'm speaking to you from Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada. And you can see some of the books behind me. Like most historians, there's, it's a jumble and a welter of books, uh, some of which are mine, uh, many of which are others. And uh, um, you know, when I went to university, I, I didn't think I was going to go into history, but I was very lucky to go to a small liberal arts university called Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. Met some wonderful professors who introduced me to the study of, of military history. And for me, it's always been the, um, the words of uh, participants, the eyewitnesses to history, the, in my case, the soldiers, the airmen, the nurses of the First World War and then the Second World War. And this is my 14th major book, but if one was to look, I guess, at a theme running through them, it would probably be about those individual Canadians. And I tend to write about the Canadian military history experience. And 
I think John, we talked about, um, you know, the need to tell our stories and uh, in a previous uh, broadcast. And that's been something that drives me as well. So it's, um, I've been at this for about 25 years. Uh, I still, every day is, is uh, fabulous. I'm, I'm the senior historian at the Canadian War Museum. And so I work with wonderful colleagues, um, an incredible collection. The War Museum in Ottawa has about 500,000 artifacts. John, I know you've been there. Oh, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's really, there are priceless works of art, about 13,000 mm -hmm. works of art. We have an archives. And um, pre-COVID, we were getting about 450,000 visitors a year. And I I think that's that's an important thing in Canada, um, to be able to share these stories of of Canada's military history, the the heroism and the and the horror, the incredible service and sacrifice uh, of ordinary men and women, and um, uh, I won't put out uh, any more plugs for the museum except to say that it is it is a great honor to work there. What was it like, Tim, uh, growing up around some of the people that were uh, comrades of those that you write about? What was it like meeting those people as you were coming up? Yeah, I, I've been lucky to be able to speak to veterans um, most of my adult life. And in fact, at the War Museum, we've just started a new program of interviewing veterans. And uh, you may remember my last book, The Fight for History, where I, I wrote about the memory of the Second World War. I wrote a two-volume history of the Second World War. And then I realized, geez, I should try to follow these men and women. What happened to them after 1945, those that survived? And that book tried to look at the memory of the war. But one of the things I realized is, is it's difficult to write about the veterans experience because veterans, um, it's very different for everyone. Some joined the Legion. Some never wanted to talk about the war again. Some carried physical wounds or mental wounds. Others were just fine and slipped back into society. Um, I wanted to know uh, partially because I had a grandfather who flew in the Second World War, uh, who I really never got to meet. He passed away when I was very young. But I was able to write about him and what I knew about his experiences and his relationship to war. So that's been something that has really interested me. And, and certainly at the War Museum, uh, we have uh, many veterans who, who volunteer there, who share their experiences with our, our visitors. And it's always, um, it's always great just to listen. And, um, and, and sometimes I'll start a conversation um, with a few questions, but then I'll just sit back and, and try to try to hear their stories. And I know, John, that, that's something that matters to you as well, uh, to keep these memories alive. And, um, uh, you know, there's always something in the conversation that you take away, often many things. And I've talked to so many veterans who have said, well, Tim, you know, I'm sure I'd be happy to talk to you, but, I, you know, I didn't win the military cross or I, I didn't win anything. Well, you know, let's just talk about those experiences. What was it like to be on a Corvette in, in the Atlantic in 1942 with the U-boats swarming? And they'll tell you about it. And just incredible stories. And um, this is stuff that I have, I think, worked into my books over time. Mm -hmm. they, they definitely have a lot of stories to tell and and sadly we've lost so many of them now and it's up to people such as yourself to keep these stories going and and we're we're thankful for every book uh that you have written and i'm thankful for an institution such as the canadian war museum for doing so much to keep alive it is my favorite museum and i'm not saying that because you're on tim it is it is my favorite museum i've ever been to and i i continually go back uh if i'm in ontario 
you you talked about the veterans and 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 your experience with them since you've become uh, a well-published author and a very respected author were there any authors that impacted you when you were growing up or in your undergrad years or even graduate school years where you may not emulate them but they made you want to dive deeper into the idea of writing books yeah I, it, that's a great question and um I think we all have those books that we read early on that really turned us on to something. And one of the first books I read was Pierre Burton's Vimy and Pierre Burton, a great storyteller, journalist, historian in Canada. Um, and like many people uh, that that brought some of the history alive. Uh, Desmond Morton and Jack Granitstein, two of Canada's great historians, um, which I was very lucky to work with Jack Granison at the War Museum. He came back. We did an exhibition in 2019 on Canada and the Hundred Days. And, and there's a catalog that we jointly published. And then we edited a, a book of um, uh, scholarly uh, articles on the year 1919 and the return of the veterans home. So really a, a great pleasure to work with Jack and others. And I think what, what, I, what I find interesting and try to emulate in, in history and in historical writing are those historians who do deep research, who research into the archives, who um, find those letters and diaries that haven't been published before and draw out those stories, um, but then present them in an engaging way for all Canadians. Now, you know, John, I have a PhD in history. I've published a uh, hundred uh, plus uh, academic peer-reviewed articles and chapters and books. I believe in the scholarly uh, approach to this work. And yet my books, I would suggest, and they've won many uh, writing awards, uh, literary nonfiction writing awards, is that, uh, you know, we need to work hard, historians and authors. And I think this comes from my background as a public historian, one that is trying to share these story, uh, these important stories with a wide public, mm -hmm. um, that we have to find ways to tell these stories in a in a lively manner. And I'm, you know, we were talking before about American Civil War, your great interest and passion among many. You know, uh, there are so many amazing American historians and others who have found ways to to tell those stories that are so engaging. And I think often they revolve around people and the emotions. And um, and that's certainly something that infuses my books, including the new one, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, where based on um, years and years of research, but, but hundreds of letters and diaries from doctors and nurses um, exploring the medical war, along with the official records at the National Archives, along with medical literature published at the time, which, you know, doesn't read like poetry. It can be a bit of a slog, but is, is right. there. Um, and, and maybe most importantly in my new book, I wanted to include the soldiers' voices there. Because one of the things I found is that many of the medical histories are too focused on the doctors and the nurses. And it's almost like the war is happening somewhere on the horizon mm -hmm. and all these wounded soldiers arrive and that's when the story begins. Not for me. The story begins with the soldiers at the sharp end who are fighting their way forward, killing and being killed, uh, being horrifically wounded that's the start of the medical story. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that those soldiers um, had a voice in, in the book. You, you absolutely do give them a voice to them. And, and I, I admire that desire for accessibility because we're both trained public historians in our own way. Uh, me at a slightly 
many slightly lower levels than you, but but still as a trained public historian, we want to make that past accessible. And we don't want to drone on about a certain thing that's kind of like, you know, we're, the audience is going to kind of move away from it. Your books don't do that, obviously. And and I appreciate the fact that you talk about Pierre Burton because he was the one who I first read about Canadian history. And then I started reading uh, your first World War series. Uh, so it kind of links together there where it's passing the baton to different ones. But uh, when when I received Lifesavers and Body Snatchers here, if I can get it in front of my camera properly, uh, I was like, wow, okay, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different uh, that has some tones of your previous work with the dual series on the First World War, but diving into something different now. And when did you decide this was the route for you to go for this particular book? Was there a document you found or an idea that you just thought of uh, that you hadn't used yet? Or where yeah. did this blossom from? Yeah. It, it's a great question, John. And it's sort of like, where do books come from? And, and um, <laughs> uh, you know, do you find the book or does the book find you? Yeah, and exactly. uh, I think it's always a combination of that. The, the medical war is one that has fascinated me and I've come back to it in, in my two volume history on the first world war and my two volume history on the second world war. And in other studies, I was lucky to curate an exhibition at the Canadian war museum with a good friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Birch called war and medicine in 2010. So that was something. And yet um, this book I think has origins in a couple of other places as well. One of them was that um in 2012, I was diagnosed with cancer, and um, that was a very, very difficult uh, um, path to, to follow and to go down. And um, I was only 40 years old, and I was scared. And, uh, you know, I, I entered the medical system, and I got to meet many doctors and nurses and was so deeply impressed by them. And I remember, uh, you know, and twice was told I probably wouldn't survive. And um um, did come out the other side through multiple rounds of chemo and radiation and two stem cell transplants. But I thought, wouldn't it be nice, John, if, you know, if I could write a book at some point and, and just hand it over to some of these doctors and nurses. And so that, that was something, you know, uh, every book has a question. My Vimy book, I wanted to know why do we talk about Vimy as the birth of the nation? Um, my book, The Fight for History, the last one, you know, I wanted to, why didn't we talk about the Second World War as the birth of the nation? Or, or why hadn't we done a good job in Canada talking about that war and other mm -hmm. things? Um, this one is much more, I think, grappling with the contradictions of war. And it's maybe, it's in the title of Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, this idea that we send off young men uh, to war, uh, and now young, young women as well, um, fighting for their country, fighting for the national interests, uh, depending on the time. Um, and we send them into battle and often they are killed and wounded, but we, we then care for them. And that contradiction of sending them both into battle, but then the expectation that we will try to repair them hmm. often in the case of the first world war and other conflicts so that we can send them back into battle again. And I was amazed at how many times, I'd come across a soldier who'd been wounded twice, three times, four times, and back into battle. So all of that, I think, came together along with um, the second part of the title, which is Body Snatchers, so Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. And that that does come from a medical mystery that I had been trying to run to ground, John, for about 15 years. And uh, 
and very briefly, and maybe we'll talk more about it in a little bit, I had come across references that doctors were conducting autopsies on slain soldiers behind the lines. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I know a lot about the war, but I hadn't realized that was occurring. And I, because, you know, you think of these grand sweeping battles of the Somme and Passchendaele and thousands of soldiers killed or wounded. When could they have had time to do autopsies? But they did have time. But as part of that, and it came through a number of archival documents, it looked to me like they were also removing soldiers' body parts. And I thought, well, that just can't be. These are, if we think of the Great War, young men, fathers, uncles, brothers, who enlist for king and country to fight in what was then a, seen as a just war to liberate Belgium and France to stand by Britain. How could we be harvesting their body parts? And so, John, I spent years looking for the files at the National Archives, and eventually I found them. And they indeed revealed that there was an official British program of which the Canadians were a part of and willingly a part of to remove soldiers' body parts for um, for study, to, to really create medical specimens. And I found that um, I found that quite shocking. Hmm. Is, is this during an era when we see this kind of practice in other ways, maybe not from soldiers at the front line, but people who have uh, died from certain ailments in a hospital and we see them being used for uh, medical, uh, not I don't want to use the term experiments, but they're being used for research and, and such. Is this at that same time? Is this going on in other places in Canada as well as this particular move? Yeah, in Canada and the United States, in Britain, you know, in, in the Western world, certainly. And you're exactly right. Um, once I got over my surprise or shock that they were harvesting Canadian and British soldiers' body parts, I then, of course, delved into the literature. And of course, that's how doctors learned in the late 19th century, early 20th century. The, the secrets of the dead helped the doctors treat the living. Um, and and, and that, is, um, that was how they were learning. And one of the themes in the book is the learning process that goes on uh, for all the doctors and nurses and caregivers. Um, uh, you know, they were confronted with horrific wounds from shrapnel and high explosives and uh, machine guns uh, where soldiers would come in with, you know, a dozen bullets in their body or more, uh, chemical agents, all of which I talk about in the book. And then, of course, this is before the age of antibiotics. So most of these wounds were infected and and doctors in uh, 1914, early 1915, are operating and saving lives only to find that soldiers are succumbing to infection uh, days or perhaps a week later. So there's a constant learning process, uh, new surgical techniques, um, the use of blood transfusions and x-rays. Um, and what also surprised me, lectures behind the lines to share the lessons from more senior doctors to junior doctors, because this is a war where half of all Canadian doctors are serving in uniform, just an, an astonishing uh, commitment. Mm. And yet, you know, and yet, John, this had never been written about, the harvesting of body parts, the removal of brains with bullet wounds, uh, the extraction of mustard-gassed lungs, the, um, uh, you know, the extraction of spines that had been shattered, and, and all kinds of other wounds. And I thought... Mm. Why had that never been written about? 
Was it a conspiracy? Well, no, it wasn't. Um, it's just that there are many aspects of the war that haven't been written about. Mm-hmm. And yet, one of the things I grapple with in the book, again, is this contradiction between life-saving and body snatching or the desire to learn from the dead. Um, and this continues after the war without giving away too much, because there's a great book for sale. <laughs> but, um, you know, almost 800 of these body parts come back to Canada. And um, there's a great clash I write about between the desire to commemorate the fallen, as they were called, the building of thousands of memorials, almost every city, town and village built cenotaphs, meaning empty graves. We had stained glass windows, commemorative texts, war trophies came back. There were naming um, uh, of uh, structures after fallen soldiers. How do you have that, that commemorative impulse that was so strong, the creation of Vimy, our Vimy Memorial overseas and others. And then you're also okay though, with the fact that these soldiers who have died for king and country continue to serve on as medical specimens. Mm -hmm. How did this affect the Canadian Army Medical Corps going into the war? And then by the time we're starting to have these uh, events on the front, they sometimes it seemed like they weren't prepared for what everybody wasn't prepared for what was coming, but they weren't uh, totally prepared for what they were going to see on the front as far as either manpower or equipment or things like that. Was the Cam C just uh, cut off guard like everybody else and they didn't really understand what was happening? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't, this is the war, I think like most wars where um, they certainly didn't anticipate the massive firepower on the Western Front and rapid firing rifles and the artillery uh, that could just shatter bodies. And, and later, as we know, uh, scar mines with invisible wounds, uh, known as shell shock at the time, uh, the the war where we unleashed tanks on the battlefield from 1916 and chemical agents, of which the Canadians were among the first to face that horror in April of 1915 in the Ypres Salient. So the medical services um, were indeed unprepared for what they would face, and yet they learned very rapidly. And uh, um, I think that's one of those stories that I found so astonishing was how they adapted so quickly to these um, this just horrific battlefield. And and one of the things I I found um, fascinating in the records, in the archival research, was um, the prevention of disease. And of course, I began to write this book in April of 2020. And if we think back to that time, we were all locked down. We were all living in great fear of the pandemic. Uh, And I began to see with new eyes some of these documents I had in front of me where they were talking about vaccinations. Uh, The Canadian doctors, in fact, at the very beginning of the war, say that um, uh, that disease is always the great killer of armies, the great reaper of soldiers. Even the American Civil War, with its massive increase in firepower and more than 2,000 land battles, disease kills more soldiers than, than shell and bullet. Um, This is one of the things they did anticipate. And so the doctors at the start of the war said every soldier must be mandatory, uh, receive a mandatory vaccination. And, um, you know, that resonated with what we were going through in Canada, the United States, um, with our own um, discussions around vaccination. A lot of these soldiers were were afraid they had never been vaccinated before. 
And I've, I've said they sometimes should have been afraid because the doctors use the same needles over and over again, jabbing it into their arms. Right. But um, these vaccinations saved lives and the records indicate that. And they were largely protecting against smallpox and uh, typhus and, um, and and these in the past had been killers of armies. And I, I saw this vaccination throughout the war. And uh, one of the interesting chapters I write about is uh, the great battle at Vimy Ridge in April of 1917, when the four Canadian divisions attacked together for the first and in fact, only time in the war, a hundred thousand strong and they capture Vimy Ridge um, in four bloody days of battle. And yet in the three months before that, the Canadians are wallowing in the mud and they're suffering losses from uh, colds and illness and flus and viruses. And that's a period where the doctors are vaccinating the soldiers and engaging in what we'd call force protection today to try to ensure that disease didn't wipe out the Canadian Corps before they even went into battle. Mm -hmm. So that was a that's an interesting story that. Um, I suppose one might say, John, you know, all history books have their own history, but they're also shaped by the times in which we live in. Sure. Uh, and, and certainly I, I came at this book thinking about disease and viruses and bacteria in a very different way than if I had written it, for instance, in 2019. Mm. That's a really interesting point, Tim, because I didn't, I didn't think about that while I was reading it. Uh, of course, I didn't know the timeline of when you started. Uh, but it really makes sense now with some of the things about the vaccinations and such in the book and how it connects to our lived experience. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when we, when we read things that were written uh, about American history that was done during the Vietnam War and how they see warfare uh, differently because of what is going on. It impacts the authors. And I didn't think about that when I uh, when I first picked it up. And but it takes makes total sense now that, OK, that's that really hits home and uh, makes you think about it a different way. Yeah, I, um, there, were, there were all these connections through the book. The vaccination was one. I, I write about the, the Spanish flu, as we often call it, but really the, the virus of 1918, 1919, that swept around the world and killed at least 50 million people. And in Canada, 55,000 Canadians died from that virus, uh, of which the doctors were not terribly effective in, there was no treatment for it that, that they could supply, although they engaged in what, you know, some masking and some uh, social isolation of, of uh, uh, flu victims. Mm -hmm. But when what was really fascinating about looking at that virus, again, with new eyes and living through our own pandemic, was some of the lessons that emerged from the war. And um, there were many lessons, and especially with half of all Canadian doctors uh, serving overseas, they brought back with them after the war um, lessons, which included a, a greater um, understanding, I think, of the need for public health and to increase public health. One of the shocking statistics in the book is that one fourth of all babies in Montreal, which was then Canada's largest city in Quebec, uh, the province of Quebec, died before the age of one. Um, and this was at the turn of the century, but it gives a sense of really the malnourishment and the, the very poor public health. And so one of the things that emerges from some of these doctors who are serving in sites of death and destruction on the Western Front is they come back and they, they talk about the need to improve maternal care and hmm. um, the care of babies. And those are, those are interesting contradictions, I right. think. And there are so many in the book. They, 
the blood transfusions on the Western Front and the use of x-rays. Well, you know, doctors come back and they use blood transfusions for burn victims and cancer victims. They're using x-rays to help um, um, victims of tuberculosis, which was a great killer of, of that day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, one of those elements that I've been looking at a little bit more in my books recently I suppose Vimy is very much based on the legacy of, of Vimy itself and why it continues to matter. And the fight for history was very much about the veterans, you know, in Canadian society after the Second World War and the, the way we talked about the war. So the legacy of war over time, I was really interested in the legacy of the medical war. And um, mm-hmm. as one doctor said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, you know, the war just propelled us forward in so many areas of medical care. But as you said, uh, but at what a cost. And and mm-hmm. that struck me. But at what a cost, a, a terrible cost in lives. Uh, 60,000 Canadians who died during the war. But many, many thousands of additional Canadians would have died without the, the medical care that uh, mm-hmm. was really expertly given. And when I talked about this book uh, with many people, I... I think many people had a sense that the doctors in the Great War were similar. Uh, I'll use an example of the American Civil War. We're talking a lot about the Civil War tonight. But, you know, (laughs) lopping off limbs and one doctor and Mm -hmm. just people coming in. No, you know, just civilian medical care had advanced so significantly in the 50 plus years that this is really top notch medical care. And I'll just use one statistic, and it is that 90% of wounded soldiers who were seen by a doctor survived. So 90% who were seen survived. Now, within the statistics um, are the hidden cost of war. Those soldiers who died in no man's land, who who couldn't uh, be carried out or couldn't crawl out or walk out, who died in the frontline trenches. Uh, who died uh, before they reached a field ambulance, which is where they started to uh, really be counted uh, as part of the wounded. Uh, and yet, I think that does give a sense of the incredible medical care that was given to these uh, soldiers. Mm. Uh, to me, it was almost safe to say that these soldiers who uh, died on the battlefield and were taken for autopsy and had some section of their body taken for research it's almost like they're serving twice uh, because they're serving at the front and then they're serving the home front or their comrades in some other way. And it would, and that's what struck me as um, kind of odd from the stance of, we don't want to get this out into the public or anything, but yet seeing it from the other side, it's almost like, well, they're giving back in a different way. Uh, it's just said that the families weren't notified about what was going yeah. on. Right. And uh, some of them, I guess, will learn from the book, maybe for the first time that perhaps this could have happened. There's a chance it could have happened. There, There is, John. And and I struggled with that. And, and yeah. often when you uncover a story like this, which is, I think, fairly shocking because it's never been told before. Right. You you're grappling with how to make sense of it. How do you present it in the book? How do you. How do you be fair to history? And we've talked a bit about that. You need to situate it in the time. If if the doctors are learning from the dead, it doesn't it make sense, Tim, that they would continue to do that with these soldiers? And I think that's how you need to understand it, this continual learning process. What struck me, though, was that the next of kin were not told about this. Um, the, the 
fathers and mothers or the wives or the children. And nor is it on the personnel files. And we're very lucky in Canada that for each soldier who enlisted or was conscripted at the end of the war, we, there is a personnel file, uh, save for some cases where they might be lost. So 620,000 of these, and they've all been digitized. And they're on the Library Archives Canada site. And they're an incredible resource. And often now there are programs in Canada where school teachers have their students research, maybe the local cenotaph, the names on there, and they can match it up sometimes with the names of these soldiers, then they can look um, at their service. And, um, you know, it does, it's not a narrative, it's, it's an administrative record to keep track of their pay and their units they served with, but it contains medical information. And if they received a gallantry award and sometimes pension information. So they're really interesting records. Um, but nowhere in there, and I looked for the number of soldiers who I knew had body parts removed or harvested, nowhere in there is it tracked that, um, that their body part had been removed. I was only able to determine that through these other records that I have uh, already talked about. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, again, um, it's not a conspiracy, and yet it is not open and known to most Canadians. And that... Again, you know, you need to try to understand uh, a, a revelation like this in the context of the time, but it certainly does not align with how we talked about the soldiers who died during the war. Even during the war, they were called the sacred fallen, and they were used in propaganda, uh, and they were used to urge on Um, other Canadians on the home front to keep fighting or to engage in patriotic work. And, and, you know, that's not unique in war. Often those soldiers who have died are, are, they become part of the war effort. And yet nowhere, and this won't surprise you, John, but nowhere is there a war poster that says, if you're killed, you will be able to serve on as a medical specimen. (laughs) Right. And I don't want to be facetious, but that is a, a pretty significant glaring um, contradiction, right? Where we're we're saying to these young men, you are fighting for king and country to help liberate Western Europe, um, uh, to fight maybe for Canadian interests, to fight for your comrades when you're over there, to follow your officers. And, and should you be wounded and to die, um, that then some doctor will able to pick through your organs and extract a heart or lungs that he finds interesting for future medical care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, uh, I present that in the book and I hope fairly. um, And and yet I think it is a fairly significant revelation that uh, that people will want to um, read about, I I hope. Was it something that while you were reading through those documents for the first time, Tim, and, and uncovering the documents for the first time, was it something where you were wondering how you were going to attack this issue and, and, in other words, where you're like, okay, how do I even come at this? What angle do I come at this? Because uh, I know some friends who've worked on things that are uh, new or uh, new information brought out, or it could be slightly controversial. And sometimes they don't know how to come at them. Yeah. Uh, was that yeah. something that went through your mind as well? Even though you've written so much before, it's mm-hmm. just kind of, was it a natural thing? Where you're like, I don't know how I want to handle this or which route I want to go right now. You're exactly right, John. And, um, you know, part of the research process, what I love is that discovery of, of new stories or new documents, and you're making connections in the archives as you're reading it. 
Um, if you're very early in your research, sometimes you're just gathering everything because you're not quite sure what your book is about or your article or your exhibition. But as you move along and you begin to think, okay, I, I see patterns emerging here. I, I need to tell these stories. Um, and almost no topic um, is completely brand new, right? We, we, we can situate most things and certainly being an experienced historian now, I, I knew the story as I was seeing it unfold, although there were always new parts that were emerging for me. Mm -hmm. I had a much greater understanding of shell shock, for instance, um, in looking at the documents. And one of the interesting things I write about is how the high command is really pressuring the medical officers to act as gatekeepers in this one case to, to ensure that not all the soldiers uh, are, are, uh, leave the front with mental injuries. Uh, and there's other revelations like that. So as you're researching, you're putting it together, but you're exactly right. When I found this, it was sort of the equivalent of mouth, mouth uh, agape, uh, yeah. reading the files and, and each turning of the page, reading almost like a novel and thinking, oh my gosh, what will be the next page? You know, what, yeah. uh, you know, and here are lists of guys and uh, corresponding body parts removed from them. And as you, when you see that, you go, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be able to actually look at their attestation papers and track them down and where they're from and their next of kin. So yeah, you're putting it together. And I'll be, I'll be honest, John, I, I, was, uh, I was angry. I was dismayed that this had happened. I, I couldn't understand it. And from the, just the archival documents I was looking at, you're building the picture up from, you know, from the ground floor, from the literal bare bones of history. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to understand the larger structure of the program of which this, how, how the Canadians fit into that, the British program, which helped to make more sense out of it. And yet, as I write in the book, uh, even if we acknowledge that this is part of that learning process and the desire to make meaning of the war and to learn the lessons of war, it never, uh, it is never easy to square with the commemorative impulse as we've talked about in the 1920s and 30s. And mm -hmm. that disconnect is still in the book. Mm -hmm. I was wondering that too about the commemorative side of it and how, if it was known, how that would have impacted uh, the thing, because we know also in the 20s and early 30s, there was a questioning period of yeah. how to commemorate and also was it worth it? And then yeah. if this would have been thrown into the mix, I would hate to have heard the what well, the vocalizations would have been <laughs> at that time, because it's like that would have been a shock for not only you, uh, but a lot of people out there at that time, just like you were, you know, yeah. how could this happen? Well, that's right. How could it happen? How this is, you know, the war where most of the fallen remained buried overseas. Mm. And there were there were some parents saying, you know, please bring my son home. I, I, I don't want him to be buried in France. I want him to come back. There was a couple of you know, cases of grieving parents who went overseas to rob the graves of their sons and to bring their bones home in the 1920s. Mm. And so the... I think the accepted narrative that we have is that the fallen, at least for the decade after the war, in 1929, as we know, with All Quiet on the Western Front and other uh, other books begin to question the narrative. But for that first decade, very much it was seen as a just war. 
where the soldiers died in in what we would now call a a, a liberal um, uh, necessary war as they saw it at the time um, and that we built the memorials to them to remember their service and sacrifice mm-hmm. but a, again uh, how, how do you square that with these medical specimens and and you're right that it wasn't widely known although it was also not a complete secret and I was very surprised to find um, there is an three order in councils, um, one of which gave $10,000 to catalog these body parts when they came back from overseas. And so the government of the day was aware of this. Um, that that surprised me because I thought, oh, well, okay, if it's part if it's really just known to the doctors, I, I get that. But no, it was they were, they were going to be put in a museum. Now, that changes in the 20s when the Department of National Defense begins to back away from these things and they realize that maybe they shouldn't have them. But um, but I won't give away the full story here, but encourage people who might want to continue reading, which I think you can find it in more detail. But it is, I guess, ultimately, you know, war war has its own contradictions. And this is certainly one uh, the Great War with uh, so many millions of young men from all countries fighting often uh, to the bitter end uh, on whatever front, but we often focus on the Western Front. Um, the contradictions of sending soldiers into battle and soldiers who understand that they may be killed or wounded, but then expect as part of the social contract that they will be cared for, if possible, by medical services. And, uh, and then the role of those medical services in, in grappling with the horrific physical and mental wounds and the recovery process, all of which I, I talk about in the book and the tremendous trauma. And again, I guess to come back to this idea of, of the history of the times in which we write can sometimes uh, not influence us, but maybe give us new ways to think about the past. I was reflecting um, because I was reading in the letters of the nurses, of which we had about 3,000 Canadian nurses during the war, who really played a key role in the recovery of soldiers, uh, post-operative care, as, as, as nurses still do to this day. And I was thinking about uh, all of those people dying in hospitals in 2020 and 2021 in isolation often with only the nurses and the doctors bearing witness to their last moments. And I was thinking about the Canadian soldiers who were dying in casualty clearing stations and general hospitals, often with doctors and nurses uh, bearing witness to their last moments. Again, uh, a, a powerful uh, parallel and, and um, part of the, I guess, the hidden cost of war that we don't often think about. Mm. The book really underscores uh, the tragedy of of war, you know, and I've always appreciated about your work. You don't sugarcoat it, Tim, and I and I appreciate that. I, I, and I know a lot of other people do as well. And we have lived our own kind of shared tragedy, as you said, during the pandemic era uh, and myself losing a family member. And I know many others, millions of others uh, losing family members. Uh, it, it's it's a, just a, a way to look at the past in a different way when we're going through a pandemic and then reading a book such as this uh, and you writing it at the same time. It's it's going to last a while. And I know when I came to Ottawa to the uh, Remembrance Day ceremony for the second time after having read this book a while back, I was thinking about all these men in a different way because mm-hmm. I was wondering 
those those men who lie over there now uh, was something taken from them uh, that they had no, yeah. you know, they they didn't they didn't agree to this, you know, and the and the family didn't either, and uh, so it makes you think about the true tragedy of war in different ways. Yeah, those those names on the cenotaphs in our communities and our villages, towns, and and larger cities. And um, uh, I know this interests you. It interests me. Whenever I go to a, a new town or village, I look for that memorial. And in Canada, they're almost everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you see the names and it might be seven names or 14 names. And then you think, oh my gosh, what was it like to remove these 14 young men from this small farming community in Prince Edward Island or someplace like that? It really is a tragedy. And each of those names was a was a, an individual who had uh, hopes and dreams and left behind loved ones. And um, and that's always mattered to me in my books to ensure that those stories are told and remembered and not to sugarcoat it, um, not to be overly negative either. Sometimes I think we need to understand many men enlisted and, and felt this was a just and necessary war. And they continue to fight in that, but that doesn't minimize perhaps the tragedy and loss that they experienced during this war and, and all wars generally. And I think maybe as, as a final thought, as we talked about some of the parallels between the book and the pandemic and other things, yeah. um, you know, we're living through our own massive event, massive historical event, and hopefully we're, we're coming out the other side. And yet hundreds, if, you know, hundreds of people are dying a day in the United States, less here in Canada, thousands around the world from this. So it's a bit weird. It's a it's a managed number now that we seem okay with. At least we have to move forward. But I wonder, and and I know maybe it's something you think about with some of your students and others, of how how we will talk about this event um, as an international event, as a national event, as community events. As individuals, how will we talk about um, the loss? Um, One of the things that struck me, and I write about it in the book, is in Canada, we built thousands of memorials to the fallen soldiers, but we built almost no memorials to the 55,000 Canadians who died from that pandemic of 1918, 1919. There is no national memorial. They're not even local memorials. Um, And so... um, will it be different a hundred years later? And uh, how will we think about and commemorate and perhaps bear witness to this event, which has been likened by many to fighting the equivalent of an unlimited type war involving all of society? Um, I I think that'll be an interesting question. And um, the evidence will be overwhelming in terms of uh, newspaper accounts and diaries and letters and perhaps social media and other things. But we're already starting to see some of these histories coming out. But uh, I think we're very much in the first phase of that. And won't it be interesting to see 20 years from now or 50 years from now, or as in my case, writing about the Great War, more than 100, uh, 100 years later, continuing to write about it and finding new stories and I hope um, new ways to connect to modern audiences. Mm. 
Yeah, well said, Tim. And we're hoping to leave behind a, a positive legacy like you are paving the way for with, with your work. And uh, this has been a fantastic book to read, as, as all of yours has. Everybody, I put the, the link in the chat for Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, uh, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. Tim, it's been great to have you on, my friend. I really appreciate your time and, and being able to uh, uh, come back together on this. And I hope that we can do the same for the next book. So I'm sure there'll be another one somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah, you got it, John. Thanks very much for having me on again. 